Uh, I got to tell you, it's been such a privilege this morning. I met so many new faces, and, and uh, I hope you feel welcomed. We're so glad you're here. If this is your new, if you're new, if it's your first time, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're online watching, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, God is continually and continuing to do some pretty remarkable things, and I, I want you to hear this. The, last night, I was at my, my daughter's concert. Uh, she's in Nordcore. Did I say that right? Nordcore? That doesn't feel like a word. <laughs> and uh, we were at the Catholic Church in Mason City, and, and I was thinking about this. Um, if you've ever been to a Catholic Church, on the Catholic Church, uh, you have a Christ crucified on the cross. And I was sitting there, and it hit me for the first time. Now, I wasn't raised Catholic. I've been to a Catholic service maybe a couple times for funerals or a wedding. And, and I want you to think about how unique Christianity is, because we worship a God who died on a cross. And, and this is what struck me, is so often we fixate on the death of Christ when what we should be fixating on is the resurrection of Christ. Amen? And, and I think what happens, the reason why we do that is because the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross was the ultimate act of love. Love is not an adjective. Love is a verb. Amen? And, and I was thinking about this, and I'm like, wow, I wonder how many of us think that the goal of Christianity is sacrifice when the goal of Christianity is new life. And how we get new life is through sacrifice. It's by laying our lives and giving them to Jesus. And I, I was kind of thinking about just how amazing it is. Because, I mean, I think about how different this is as a religion. There are all kinds of religions in the world, and yet Christianity is the only one that focuses on a God who, instead of us trying to get to Him, He came to us. He came to meet with you. And, and here's why I share this, is that this morning... I believe God wants to meet with you. I believe that God wants to have an encounter with you that you would experience the incredible love of God. And that means that God wants to meet you in your heartache. He also wants to meet you in your joy. Like so much of Christianity, we tend to talk about the bad things, but I believe sometimes God is worth celebrating all the good things that he's doing. And so as we're thinking about this, I, I want you to know that regardless of where you are, if you're not a Christian yet, if you're exploring faith, uh, I truly, truly believe that we have a God who wants you to meet with Him. And the question is, do you want to meet with Him? Do you want an encounter with this living God? And even if you're exploring, it's okay to say, I don't know that you're real. And if that's where you are, if you're questioning, saying, I don't know if I believe all this Jesus stuff, you're not here by accident. You're not here, even if a friend invited you, I truly believe you are here because the Holy Spirit has been working on you to get you to this place. And maybe you're coming back to church, maybe you've walked away from Jesus for a season and, and you're saying, hey, I realize I try to do it on my own and it's not been working and, and I need something different and I'm here to tell you that Jesus is that something different. And maybe you've been walking with Jesus for years and you just want to come because you love Jesus, and that's why you're here. And so we're going to jump right in this morning. A practice that we've started doing over the last couple months is an invitational prayer. It's a prayer that you participate with me, and so we have it on the screen, and it's written in the first person. But if you don't want to pray it, you don't have to. You don't, if, you don't want to, if you're not there yet, that's okay. But for those who would like to, would you stand with me? We're going to pray this prayer together, and it is a prayer asking the Lord to move in me, in you, and then we're going to get right into our text for this morning. All together now, here we go. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the promise that you will draw near to those who draw near to you. 
Holy Spirit, help remove any distractions in my mind or heart this morning that might keep me from hearing what you have for me. If there is sin in the way, I give it to you. Where there is pride, I lay it at your feet. Where there is doubt, give me eyes to see and ears to hear. I want to meet with you this morning to know you more so I might love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. And now we have our text, if you would join me in reading this. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The word of the Lord, praise be to God, you may be seated. We're in week three of our Purpose Driven series where we've been walking through a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And, and I know some of you went through it years ago and I've talked to several people like, Jason, I did it years ago and I don't really feel the need to go through it. That's okay. You don't have to go through it. But for those who are, uh, we've been walking through kind of how he talks about the purpose that God created us for. And I think that what he really kind of pressed into is that that is probably the biggest question in human history. What on earth am I here for? Last week, we explored what happens when the wrong passions drive our purpose. When the wrong things, our desires are twisted, and instead of God being our passion, other things are, which is easy to do, what happens when we're driven by the wrong passions? And Rick Warren talked about five things that often drive our purpose. And I don't want to get into them. If you haven't heard the message, please go online, watch and listen online. But here are the five things that he talked about. Some of us in this room are driven by guilt. Guilt becomes your purpose. Others, anger and resentment. For others, the thing that drives you is fear, materialism, or approval. And as I walked through that, how many of you, when you walk through that, can connect to at least one or two or all of those? Come on, you better all raise your hand. Because if, if one's not hitting you, you're just not being honest with yourself, right? Exploring these drives, what we did is we looked at the story of a man named Jacob who stole his twin brother's birthright from his father. He was a lying, conniving con artist who cared more about his passion driven by bitterness, believing that maybe he deserved the birthright from his older brother, and he ended up tricking his father on his deathbed. Think about that. How messed up is that, right? Your dad's dying, he's blind, and you know what better time to take advantage of somebody when they're dying and they can't see? This is what Jacob does, and it's through Jacob. Now check this out. It's through Jacob that God formed the Israelites. In fact, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. You know what I love about this story? God isn't looking for your perfection. Only God is perfect. In fact, throughout history, God continually uses imperfect and broken people. That includes you. That includes me. And if I can't get an amen for that, we're not listening, okay? God uses imperfect, broken people. There is no sin too great that God cannot redeem or work through in your life or mine. And I think that's an important message for us because when we talk about passions, Jacob was driven by something. And so God appeared to Jacob. This is what we talked about last week. Jacob was on the run from his brother because his brother wants to kill him, understandably so. He stole his birthright. And there, as he's laying at this place called Bethel, the Lord appears to Jacob in a dream. And he shows Jacob a ladder descending from heaven 
to earth. And angels are ascending and descending. And one of the things that we find in Scripture is that angels never wrestle with their purpose. Now, they might rebel against their purpose. That's who Satan was. Satan was a fallen angel who rebelled against his purpose, which was to worship and glorify the God who created him. But every other angel, apart from the demons and Satan, which we believe are real, they are not mythical creatures. We believe the enemy is alive and well, but he is a created being. He is a fallen angel. But the other angels... They know their purpose. They never wrestle with it. And the reason why they're ascending and descending the ladder is they are bringing God's will, purpose to earth. And I believe the reason why God showed Jacob the ladder was at the top of Jacob's ladder was not God. It was Jacob. Jacob was at the top of his ladder. And here's the remarkable thing about God's grace. And I want you to hear, maybe someone needs to hear this this morning, God doesn't come out and immediately condemn Jacob's sin. In fact, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he blesses Jacob. He reminds Jacob that God has a purpose for Jacob that is apart from Jacob, and now God wants to bless Jacob even in his brokenness. Now, it's not that God blesses sin. God will never bless sin. That's in your life. That's in mine. But God works in spite of our sin to accomplish his purpose and will. Does that make sense? And so we ask the question, what's at the top? of your ladder? What's at the top of my ladder? What is the thing that you've elevated higher than God? And we all have those things. They're, they're hard not to come by. Maybe at the top of your ladder is job, or it's money, or it's a family, or a past hurt, or bitterness. Some of you have elevated brokenness, like you've put your hurt at the top of your life. It dictates and drives everything. In fact, you worship your brokenness. You're not meaning to, you're not trying to, it's just overwhelming you so much, which is why you need a Savior. What's distracting you from knowing and loving God and therefore living God's purpose in your life? That's, that's a pretty big question, isn't it? What's the distraction that's getting in your way? Every human being was created. The very first purpose, the foundational purpose of all human beings was to know and love God, make Him known and enjoy Him forever. All human beings, whether you're a Christian or not, whether, uh, whether you're an atheist, all human beings were created with the ultimate purpose was to know and love God and make Him known and enjoy Him forever. That is something eternal within us that God has created. And some of us just don't want to live out that purpose or we haven't found it or we don't understand it. And if the only reason that you were created was to know and love Jesus, that would be more than enough. Sometimes we want to be big, we want uh, huge dreams, we want to change the world, and we think that's our purpose, but if the only purpose that God created you for was to know Him and love Him, that purpose would be worth it. If no one ever knew your name, God knows your name. God knows you intimately. Now, here's what I love about God. God is so good and so loving that, yes, while He created us to know and love Him, He also created you to partner with him to bring his purpose to earth. So therefore, I believe God has a unique purpose for every human being in the world. Every human has a purpose that is not just to know God, but to make God known through your gifts and talents, the thing that God has uniquely created you for. God has lovingly and intentionally designed you with a unique purpose. Now, this morning I was smelling the uh, burritos, and uh, it got ruined by the smell of onions. Can't, I'm not, a, not an onion guy. But I was over at the traditional building, and I walked in, and I was reminded of the great Ron Swanson who said, I would like all the bacon. 
And then he said, I think you misheard me. I meant all the bacon, right? Um, the purpose of bacon is to be eaten. It's not just to sit around, right? It has a holy purpose. That's, you heard me say that. Bacon is a holy thing. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Praise be to God, the word of the Lord. Um, it's funny, is it's so easy for us to understand something else's purpose, it's so hard for us to understand our purpose. Uh, have you ever heard this? When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You ever heard that before? When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail because a hammer knows its purpose. When you're a house, every person looks like somebody who should live there. Human beings, we struggle with what our purpose is because unlike a hammer, we are complex, unique creatures that come with a lot of baggage. And a lot of things spoken over us and a lot of things spoken into us and a lot of bad decisions that we've made that all kind of mess these things up. And, and this morning we're going to talk about why the very next purpose, if the primary purpose, the foundational purpose of all human beings is to know and love God and make Him known and enjoy Him forever, there is the next purpose. And it technically is the first purpose in the book. It's to worship. That is the first direct result of knowing and loving God as we are created, you were created to worship. And the, the issue becomes is the reason why we so quickly elevate things into the wrong place is because you were actually created to do that. But you were elevated or you were created to put God as the first and foremost and then sin kind of twisted things. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me so far? Like, that's the problem with sin is that the reason why we worship, we elevate other things is because within us, we were created to worship. Doesn't not, that has nothing to do with being a Christian. All human beings are created to worship. We see it throughout history. Do you realize that every human being throughout history has elevated a God somewhere? Even an atheist. Do you know who the God of the atheist is? Themselves. Science. Whether you look at Buddhism, Hinduism, Muslim, whatever it might be, human beings have always looked to something to worship to give us purpose, and that is not an evolutionary accident. It is a Holy Spirit, God-divine-inspired direction in your life. But it only comes to pass, it only comes to its ultimate goal, its true purpose, when Jesus is the thing we elevate. And so, Imagine, this, this leads some people, and I've had conversations with people who are not Christians who struggle with worship because it, it, it messes with their idea about God. Uh, how many of you, whether you're a parent or not, how many of you have ever seen a little kid trying to stand in front of people going, look at me, look at me, you know what I'm talking about? You know, you're, you could be in the middle of something and there's a kid, mom, I'm dancing, right? They're doing their thing. I'm, I'm reminded of Buddy the Elf, right? <laughs> I love you, I'm here, right? <laughs> And there's something inside of us that we look at, and we've seen children saying, look at me, look at me. And I think the problem is, is sometimes we wonder, do we have this insecure God who is constantly saying, look at me, look at me? I mean, when children do it, we're like, oh, that's adorable, until it's not anymore, right? <laughs> when adults do it, when an adult looks up and says, look at me, look at me, it's kind of creepy, and yet here we have a God who constantly says, look at me. Look at me. I was reading an article recently from uh, John Piper. It was written many years ago. John Piper was a pastor at a, a rather large uh, church in, in Minneapolis. And, and while I don't agree with John Piper on everything, like, I don't agree with myself on a lot of things, so it's fine. Um, he, he, this is what he talked about. He shared the story 
different stories of famous people who were raised in Christian faith and walked away from their faith because they struggled with God being self-promoting or full of himself. Now, I want to share a couple of these individuals. Now, this is all from John Piper. I haven't, I have no reason to think he would lie, but Oprah Winfrey, everybody knows Oprah Winfrey. At 27 years old, she left the Christian faith she was raised in because she was bothered by the Bible's teaching that God was jealous and that he demands that he and no one else gets our highest allegiance and affection. It didn't sound loving to her. Brad Pitt, any Brad Pitt fans out there? I think Brad Pitt has one acting move. It's this. Hey, that's Brad Pitt. You're welcome. He left his childhood faith because God says, you have to say that I am the best. It seemed to be too much about ego. Brad Pitt left. Now, it's ironic that two of the world's famous, most famous people are complaining about God's ego. (laughs) Author and eventual Christian thinker C.S. Lewis, before he came to Christ... His major complaint about God was his demand to be praised. Now, these are his words, and remember, this was probably written in the 30s. He said he was frustrated because God sounded like a vain woman who wanted compliments. C.S. Lewis. And I totally get this. I get why if you're hearing God, and we live in a culture that when you see people that are egotistical, full of themselves, we're like, that's, it's it's unbecoming of somebody, and yet here we have a God who says, look at me, worship me. And I, I, this kind of leads us to our, our verse for today. See, the backstory of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is part of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch or the Torah, and it is God's law. Deuteronomy is written by Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit. God gave him these words, and, and we have the Ten Commandments, which happened in the, the desert. And then God says, here's how people I want you to live. And so you have the book of Leviticus, which are the ritual purity laws. How do you remain religiously, spiritually pure? And then you have Deuteronomy, which is how are you to live as a people, as a citizen of God's kingdom? They're wandering in the desert. Now let's listen to these verses again. Deuteronomy 4. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything your Lord, your God as forbidden, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. Jesus took it even a little bit further when one of the disciples or one of the rabbis said, hey, great teacher, how would you sum up all the laws? And uh, Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, he quoted what's called the Shema, which is an ancient prayer, and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then he added, and with all your mind. And that's a whole different conversation. Why? These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and where you get up. Now, let's think about this for a second. Now, God has actually commanded his people. I mean, in the Ten Commandments, how many of y'all are familiar with the Ten Commandments? I'm not asking you if you know the Ten Commandments, but how many of you have heard of them, right? We know the Ten Commandments. There's literally a command saying that you are not to put any other God over him. He alone is God. But notice how he begins with it. Don't forget the covenant. He's talking to his people. He's talking to those who are Israel. He's talking to the Christian. 
Don't forget the covenant, the promise with you. You are to have no idols which are false gods made by man. Why? Because God is a consuming fire and a jealous God, so you must love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then teach your children to do the same. But the question is why? Why did God make this commandment, make this a commandment? And I think the answer is because God knew that all of us have a tendency to put the wrong thing on top of the ladder. All of us, every single one of us have the tendency to put the wrong thing on the ladder because that's our brokenness. We're created with eternity in our hearts. We're created to know and love God. And yet that is twisted and broken within us. Our purpose goes in the wrong direction. So you and I are created to worship something or someone and that something is supposed to be God. The problem is it's usually not. That's including in my life. And now, if you're going through the purpose-driven life, or if you've read Rick Warren's book in the past, we, we have to talk about what is worship? What does it actually mean to worship? It's kind of a weird word. We know it. We're kind of familiar with it. But I want to talk about what worship actually is. Rick Warren describes it as this. It is bringing pleasure to God. Anything that brings pleasure to God is called worship. Psalm 147, the Lord is pleased only with those who love and trust his love. Why? Why does God deserve your worship? That's a pretty big question, isn't it? Now, in all honesty, how many of you have ever wondered why God deserves your worship? I can tell you I have. If you have, raise your hand. If that's, it's okay if you have that. It's a real question. Why does God deserve my ultimate affection? What if Brad Pitt and Oprah Winfrey are right about God? What if God is just insecure, jealous, spiritual being in need of adulation, praise, and worship, and loyalty, screaming, look at me, look at me? What if that's really who God is? And if so, is God arrogant to say that you and I were actually created to worship Him? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you've actually come with questions, this could be a good morning for you. Because what we're going to find out is that God isn't insecure. In fact, he is ultimate security. You're going to find that God is not arrogant or egotistical, and I want to, I'm going to show you why. And maybe you're like, I already get it. Well, then may this affirm your worship of Jesus. The first thing is it helps to understand the question what the word worship actually means. See, we have a dilemma in the church, particularly the modern church of today. Worship has become a style of music. It's now associated with an action, a song, and so we just had a worship time as if worship doesn't happen after the music. No, everything is worship, but because of that, what we tend to view is we put worship into a box. And for some of you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Bible geek out here for a second, some of you are like, eh, it's okay. Others you are like, yes, I love Bible stuff, okay? I want to share with you two Hebrew wor- or two words, one in Hebrew, one in Greek, that are where we get the word worship. And they're actually, worship is not a Hebrew or Greek word. The concept is, okay? So the first one is in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for worship is hawa. Everybody say hawa. Now, if you're not spitting out, you're not saying it correctly, okay? It's supposed to come from your throat. Hawa means to bow down. Uh, Any Wayne's World fans out there? We're not worthy. Here's the best part. Um, In sermon read-through, the 20-somethings are like, what's that? And I was like, I hate you. In the New Testament, the Greek word for worship is proskuneo. Everybody say proskuneo. Weird word. It literally means to kiss the ring, to submit to his authority. It's like a dog licking its master's hand. 
Now, let's, if we take these two words literally in their meaning, it literally means to bow before God and kiss the ring, to submit to him, to lick the hand of the Lord. You ever had your hand licked? That's disgusting. Both certainly fit with what the Bible describes worship as. Listen to what the, the psalmist writes in Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. In Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul, he wrote this. This is the message version. Because of Jesus' obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever so that all created things in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. Now let's be honest, these, this idea of bowing before somebody kissing the ring, that doesn't set well with Americans. It really doesn't. It, it comes with a bunch of red flags. It seems rather demanding. It's like a rock star telling people to worship them. And yet this is the language. And in fact, some of us, you might even say that uh, there are arrogant and abusive leaders that have kind of led people like that. I think this is why we're, we've seen so many pastors fall and fail in the last 10 years. is because of, instead of them worshiping and bowing to Jesus, they demand that other people kiss the ring and bow to them. Uh, or, or even worse, we've seen cults that have moved this direction where they elevate a person. Uh, this is part of the reason, if you don't know this, why I'm not Pastor Jason. I'm Jason, who happens to be a pastor. I'm not elevated. I'm just using the gifts that God has called me to. And my job is to help you use the gifts God has called you to. So when people are like, oh, but I want to call you Pastor Jason, that's cool if you want to do that. But I don't demand that because my title is not, J is not pastor, it's son of God. Your title is daughter of the king, son of the king. That becomes our identity, amen? But if we look at this from another angle, what happens when we simply break down the word worship in our language. The word worship actually comes from two words. Worth-ship. Worship. Worth-ship. And when we take these words, it literally, the simple definition, uh, it means to give value, worth, or worthiness to something that is on display. A simple definition is worship is merely your response to something you value most or supremely. Whatever you value most is what you are worth-shipping. Again, let's go back to Jacob and the ladder. What's at the top of your ladder? What do you give ultimate value? What is directing and driving your life? And the evidence of that is, there actually is evidence. It's not just a feeling. You can see the evidence of what you worship by how you live. Jacob lied and stole and connived. Why? Because the thing he worshiped and elevated was himself and his own needs. Now, stay with me here. So what makes God different than a rock star? What makes God different than an insecure person or a child? Why does God have the right to say, I am what is worthy of worship? I deserve your worship. Why does God deserve it? What is it? What is so special about God? What makes him any different? Well, I think we have to ask the first question. If you look at Jacob, if Jacob is at the top of the ladder, is he worthy of praise? Is he worth trusting in? I hope the answer is no. Brad Pitt, Oprah Winfrey, are they worthy of praise and putting your trust in? No. Am I worthy of praise and putting your trust in? No, I'm not worthy of it. Hopefully I've earned it. But no. Whatever is at the top of your ladder is worthy of your praise. 
And the question is, what is, is, what's at the top of your ladder? Is it worth it? Listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things, all things, how many things? All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He created all things. All things exist because God willed it. That includes the heavenly realm. The world that you cannot see, the dimensions of the universe that are outside of our reality, God created them. Alls we have are visions or images, things we want heaven to look like. We cannot fully grasp how big and beautiful heaven will be. We can't. It's outside of our ability. We're limited by our finiteness. Everything in the universe... Have you, do you, I mean, think about it. And when we look at the universe, you have a very small glimpse of how big the universe is. Billions upon billions of galaxies. And within those galaxies are how many planets? Someone once asked me, Jason, if there's alien life, would God cease to exist? No. There could be aliens. And, and if we find an alien, we would be like, wow, God, you're so cool. Now, someone's like, well, did Jesus die for them too? I don't know. I don't have to worry about that. I don't get freaked out by science when I look at these things. I go, wow, the purpose of science is to show us how something came, or not how something could be, but what something is. We cannot explain how things came to be. Big question, ready for this? How many of you guys heard of the Big Bang? What was before the Big Bang? Where did the space that exists, where did that come from? And I love scientists that are not Christian will go, well, they'll try and figure it out. They're called theories for a reason because we don't know. God is the uncaused cause. God is the uncaused cause. Everything has a cause except for God. And uh, someone who's an atheist will say, well, I cannot believe in an uncaused God, but you believe in an uncaused universe? Where did the universe come from? And here's the reason why some people struggle with the idea of God. They're perfectly fine with a universe that simply came to be, that, that always existed, but they're not okay with believing a personal living God has always existed. The reason is this. They're okay with an impersonal force always existing. They're not okay with a personal God. Do you catch the difference? It has to do with relationship is what the struggle is. Everything in the universe, God created it. Our solar system. Every planet, the fact we're in the Goldilocks zone, every time scientists think they've found a planet that could be habitable, all of a sudden they discover, oh, it's too close to the sun, or it's too many planets, or it doesn't have the right, it doesn't have the right balance, there's not a moon to protect us. Do you know how many asteroids, this is crazy, you know how many asteroids that we don't get hit by because Jupiter takes them in? Every, everything in our solar system, God put it perfectly in its place, it's called the fine-tuning of the universe. Even, uh, even Christopher Hitchens, actually it might have been Richard Dawkins, says the biggest argument against uh, why he, if there was a God, it would be this. He cannot explain the fine-tuning of the universe. Everything just is exactly how it should be. God created that. And the world we live in, all of its plants and animals and fish, all of these things were created by God. Now, you might not believe it's the God of the Bible, and that's a, that's a different question. Even your DNA... Your DNA, the thing that holds you together, that makes you up, was created by God. The atoms that bind things together, created by God. God is the infinite creator. So what makes him worthy of praise? 
The fact that he is the creator and you are not alone makes him worthy of praise. And someone might go, Jason, I still don't think he deserves my worship. Well, if God is who he says he is and has done what he says he has done and what he can do, why is he not worthy of praise then? He's not arrogant. It's not, if Michael Jordan were to stand on the playground with a bunch of little kids and say, I'm better than you, you wouldn't go, so arrogant. You'd go, well, duh, you're Michael Jordan. It's not arrogance when you state a fact. This is, and I think sometimes we get, we get messed up on this because we think it's insecure. And I hear this all the time, not just from Christians, from people in the world, that they think it's arrogant to acknowledge their gifts. I know that one of the gifts that I have is preaching. I know that. But I'm not the best preacher in the world. I know that there are people far better than me. But I know that's my gift. Is that arrogant to say that? No, no, if I walk around going, y'all lucky to hear me today. <laughs> that's a different conversation, right? When God states, I am God, if there's anything above him, that thing becomes God. And because there's nothing before him, he alone is God. And God, therefore, is worthy of our worship. Now, I've had somebody say, this is, you You know, I always get pseudo-intellectual people who are like, well, God, Jason... I was in a philosophy class my sophomore year of college. It's always sophomore year. My, one of my professors once said, best time to write a book is your sophomore year of college because you know everything. <laughs> or when you're 13. It's the same thing. <laughs> I've heard this. Well, could God create a, a being bigger than him that that thing is God? No. Because the minute something else, if God were to allow something else to be worshipped, that would mean he would cease to be God. That thing would have to be God. God is the supreme being, the supreme thing. Anything that goes beyond him now becomes God. God has to tell you to direct your worship at him because he is supreme. And if he were to say, no, no, it's okay that you direct your supreme, that supreme love and affection towards something else, that something else now becomes God. And here's the question. Tell me one other person in your life that created all the universe. You can't. It doesn't exist. The supremacy of God is what allows God to say, I am supreme and why he is worthy of our worship. But God allows us. This is part of the free will. He allows you to choose something other than him. But that thing will never be ultimate, ultimately fulfilling in your life. This is why God gave the command to his people to worship him only. God put that as a, not an ego trip, not an arrogance, but as a simple truth that if you want things to go in the direction they're supposed to be in your life, that doesn't mean everything's going to work out. It doesn't mean you're not going to get sick. It doesn't mean cancer's not going to happen. It doesn't mean bad things don't happen to good people. But if you want to live in the intention of what the God of the universe has set up, he must be supreme. And part of that supremacy is trusting him. It is not insecurity on his part. Insecurity is driven by fear. Who is God possibly afraid of? No one. Because if he was afraid of it, what would that thing be? God. He has to be ultimate. Now, as we look at this, let me give you another example. Uh, ready for this? I'm going to show you. There's a debate going on in sports circles. How many of you know what the debate is here? What's the debate? Anybody tell me? Who's the GOAT? Is it LeBron? How many LeBron fans think he's the GOAT? Put your hand down. Michael Jordan. How many think Michael Jordan's the GOAT? Kobe Bryant. (laughs) 
Do you want to know the only reason why there's actually a debate around who's the goat is because eventually someone will surpass them all? Or, or is the goat this person? <laughs> Preach it! The only reason why we can even have the debate about who is the greatest of all time is that eventually someone will surpass them. It may not be for 100 years. But nobody ever thought that Michael Jordan would ever be surpassed or even could possibly compare. Well, you might argue Michael Jordan is the greatest, but then all of a sudden Kobe Bryant comes along. And people look at Kobe Bryant, well, maybe, maybe he's, well, let's, let's compare stats. Did you know you don't have to compare stats against God? No one is greater than God. That's, that's how we know. We don't, there is no greatest of all time conversation with God. If he is God, he's worthy of being called God. Otherwise, he's not God anymore. Now, in the midst of that, we could look at Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, and, and here's the thing. They are worthy. They are worthy of bowing down and kissing the ring on the basketball court. That's it. Let's look at them as people. How are they as human beings? You ever tracked any of these guys that we tend to elevate as being supreme? They're not always great people. They're broken just like the rest of us. We need to stop being so hard on athletes and celebrities for their sin. Take a look at your own. Now put a spotlight on it. How well would you hand up to scrutiny? You wouldn't. But why are we elevating them as if they're God? How about as husbands or fathers or friends? What about morally? Are they role models? Would you give the rest of your life to serve any celebrity? No. How about this? Would you give the rest of your life to serve your children? I bet you a lot of you would say yes. And here's the problem. Your children can't save you. Your children, they're not worth worshiping. And it's not because they're horrible. It's because what happens, oh, you want to know what happens to parents who elevate their children as supreme in their life? What happens when the kids leave the nest? They have no purpose. For 18 years, 19 years, 20 years, whatever it might be, or you have that parent who refuses to let their child go because that child has become the object, the supreme object in their life. Or how about a spouse or a friend or a theology? Some of you in this room have elevated theology above God. You care more about being doctrinally correct than actually loving the Jesus who the doctrine is centered on. I went through that. We as humans are deeply flawed and, and what we need is redemption. What makes God God is that nothing can or ever will surpass His greatness, His goodness, and His holiness. He is meant to be at the top of the ladder. He is worthy of your worship. I was in the Walmart parking lot and uh, anybody want a $100 bill? Who wants a $100 bill? Anybody want this? So a few hands went up. Um, before you take it, let me read what it says. Copy money for motion picture purposes only. I was in Walmart parking lot and I saw that on the ground. I was like, sweet, thank you, Lord. Picked it up and went, that's not $100. <laughs> See, the problem with idols is they all appear to be the real thing. They all look like they're worth it. See, that, this wasn't actually worth picking up until I picked it up and realized it wasn't worth it. How many of you have things in your life that you thought were worthy of picking up until you realized it wasn't worth it at all? See, idols make false promises. They overpromise and underdeliver. Every idol does. God never overpromises and he un never underdelivers. The problem is you put your expectations on what you think God should do for your life. So all of a sudden, well, God, I put my trust in you and I didn't become a millionaire. Are you there, Lord? 
God, I prayed. I tithed. I haven't won the lottery. God, I'm praying and I'm tithing and I'm still sick and my wife is still battling cancer. By the way, my wife is not battling cancer. Praise the Lord. See, usually when we think God is over-promised and under-delivered, it's because you've added what you think God needed to deliver in your life instead of trusting Him to be God of your life and that He's ultimately worth it. Anything you worship comes with a cost. Anything. And the question is, is the cost of worshiping it worth it? Louis Giglio, pastor and author, said this, how can I tell what I am worshiping? You guys ready for this? This, is, this might hit some of you. Simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your loyalty. At the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whatever or whomever is there on that throne is what your highest value to you is. You want to know what you're worshiping? Look at your time. Look at your affections. Look at your energy. Look at your money. Look at your loyalty. On that throne is who or what you worship. Your job, your family, your happiness, your bitterness, your pain, your shame and guilt, your healing, your hobby, your body. Yes, your theology. I know people who go to church and they think going to church is what makes them a Christian. No, loving Jesus makes you a Christian. Going to church just makes you a person who goes to church. Jesus is meant to be our affection. Do you know how many Christians I know who love their theology more than they love Jesus? Do you know how many Christians I know who love their hobby more than they love Jesus? Do you know how many Christians I know who love their platform more than they love Jesus? Do you know, do you know, because we all have them, this goes back to the same problem. Why do we tend to elevate? Because you were created to worship, and because you were created to worship, you will naturally do what you were created to do, to worship. Every hammer looks at everything like a nail. Your brokenness, apart from the Holy Spirit in Jesus, means you will look at everything as worthy of worship, but only God is. And you need God to center that for you. I've watched marriages implode. I've watched children be neglected and set aside. I've watched lives absolutely decimated when they put their worth in something other than Jesus. Now, here's the problem with our worship, is that when we put it in the wrong thing, ultimately, that thing defines us. Whatever you're worshiping, you will be defined by. And, and because there's a cost to all things, you have to ask, what is the cost? Is the cost of following Jesus worth it? Well, here's why I believe the cost of following Jesus is worth it. Uh, worth it. When you look at Jesus, he is not just merciful, he is mercy. When you look at Jesus, he is not just just, he is justice. When you look at Jesus, he is not just loving. The Bible tells us God is love. You were created because God loves you and knows you and you were created for a purpose and the foundation of that purpose is to know and love God. And when you allow him to be supreme in your life, you will experience his love. You will encounter his love. How many of you want to encounter that love today? Someone here this morning needs to encounter that love today. Maybe you're going through a divorce or maybe you just found out there's sickness or maybe you've got some sin and shame that you're carrying around. I'm here to tell you that Jesus came to set you free. Many years ago, I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Many years ago, uh, part of our struggle is we hear that word jealousy. And when we think of the word jealousy, anybody think of the word jealousy as being good? It's kind of an icky word, right? You think of a jealous lover or a jealous boyfriend or girlfriend. So several years ago, I, uh, this was many years ago, Husband comes to me and said, Jason, I need you to meet with my wife and I. Um, I'm really frustrated. My wife is so jealous. She's always, she's always controlling me, curious where I am. If I'm not home on time, she gets upset. And she's just a very jealous person. I need you to meet with me. And so I sit down with this couple, right? 
and we're sitting down, and he begins to say, he goes, you know, I, I love you, but here's the thing. I just can't handle your jealousy. It's controlling. It's suffocating me. I, I can't do it anymore. And I look at her, and I go, is this true? Are you jealous? And she goes, yeah. Did he tell you the rest of the story? No, he did not. <laughs> What's the rest of the story? Has he been telling you that he's been sleeping with another woman for the last several years, and I've known about it, and he won't leave her? Why, no, he did not tell me that. It's amazing how everything changed with a little bit of information, isn't it? And all of a sudden, he goes, this is what the husband says. Well, no, that's not the point. The point is that she's jealous, Jason. I went, no, the point is you're dumb. That's the point. She has every right to be jealous. Did you know that jealousy is a holy emotion when it's connected to covenant? When jealousy is connected to covenant, it is a holy emotion. Why did God in Deuteronomy say, remember the covenant? He didn't say, don't have idols. He started off with, remember the covenant, because covenant, God entered into a relationship with his people, a holy relationship. And he said, don't put any idols. Don't put a false love in there. As a wife, of course she was jealous because they were in a covenant together. When you get married, what do you stand before God and before man? And what do you make? A covenant. God is a jealous God for his people. If you are a Christian, you entered into a marriage covenant with the Lord. That's why we're called the bride of Christ. Not the girlfriend of Christ, not the boyfriend of Christ, the bride of Christ. When you put your faith in him, you entered into a new covenant bought with his blood and love, with his mercy and justice. And when you worship him, what you're acknowledging is that God, just like human beings, has love languages. How many of you guys are familiar with the love languages? How many of you have ever read love languages or know your love language? You know what the problem with love languages are? Check this out. I love my wife. We've been trying to figure out her love language for years. She's a mystery wrapped in an enigma, in a paper towel, wrapped in a box, in another mystery. I'm like, what is your love language this? She's like, today it is. And I'm like, that's not helpful. Not helpful. My love language, touch. You touch me, I'm like, yeah. Feel loved. Give me a gift. Feel loved. Did you know God doesn't give us a mystery on his love language? He tells you exactly how he feels loved. And here's the best part. It's not just when we sing praises, though he loves when we sing. I love when people say, Jason, I don't like to sing. Did you know worship isn't about you? You don't sing because you like to sing. You sing because God loves it when you sing. Well, Jason, I sound bad. It's called a joyful noise. <laughs> but you know what else God loves? And this is the part that we forget. He loves justice and mercy and compassion and forgiveness. And here is the best part. Would you stand with me? I want you to hear this. God is worshiped most when you put your hope in him the most, when your life is lived for his glory the most, when you are living out your purpose for his glory and his fame, he is worshiped, which means you can worship God running a marathon. You can worship God at your job. You can worship God in anything you do if God is at the object of that. There's only one thing that cannot worship God. You ready for it? Sin. It's the only thing that does not give glory to God. Everything else in your life, everything, 
Everything else in your life can give glory to God except for sin. The problem is sin twists good things and makes it bad. So now all of a sudden your job, which was meant to give glory to God, might be the purpose in which God has put you in as a calling. Now, because there's sin involved, it's now become the top of the ladder for you. Repent. Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a hobby, maybe it's a feeling, maybe it's fear, whatever it might be this morning, the calling on our lives is to repent and surrender it to Jesus. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Close your eyes for a minute. If, and I want you to, for a moment, I want you to picture what's on the top of that ladder. What's the thing that you're worshiping that's not God? And when you have it, put your hand up in the air. As soon as you can see it, if you have it, put it in the air. We're going to do the easiest prayer in the history of Zion. You ready for it? It's two words. I surrender. Say that one more time. Say, I surrender. One more time. I surrender. Don't leave it on the throne. Kick it off the throne. Put Jesus on the throne and now say these words to you. Let's put these four words together. I surrender to you. All together now. Let's come and worship a God who is worthy of our worship. Amen. Can we just give a clap for the Lord? He is good.